This Israel report is brought to you by the Blue Agency. Your Israel property is in good hands. Owning properties in Israel can be a great investment, but challenging to manage if you're based abroad. The Blue Agency will manage every aspect of your property, finding and vetting tenants, maintaining your property and getting it rental ready, negotiating contracts and collecting rentals, reporting back to you regularly. The Blue Agency has built a reputation for trust and confidentiality over 20 years. The Blue Agency, your Israel property is in good hands. Contact us at www.thebueagency.com. The Israel Report for the latest news and insights with Anthony Reich. Anthony Reich, Boker Tov, Shavuotov. How are you? Boker Tov, Shavuotov. Happy New Year. Welcome back, Howard. Unfortunately, I am forced to quote the great French writer Jean Baptiste Alphonse Carr when I say, The more things change, mm-hmm. the more they stay the same. And um, since you've been away, unfortunately, um, there's been a lot that has changed, but largely it stayed the same. And um, I want to start uh, with your permission by telling the story, a personal story um, of one of the IDF soldiers who's been involved um, in the war. Um, and I know that these personal stories are very emotive. And I personally try to stay away from too many personal stories because I don't know that I'm yet ready to go into all the details of some of the things that have happened. But I think that the story of Sivansa Kelly Ben Zikri is a very fascinating one. Uh, she is a captain in the reserve uh, forces. Right. And on October the 7th, she was at home. Um, and eventually on October the 8th, she was contacted to be called up to reserve duty. And she was assigned the task of informing families that their loved ones had fallen in action mm. and was also assigned the task of planning and overseeing soldiers' funerals. Oh my now, word. let's remember oh, that on that goodness. day, nearly 300 IDF soldiers were killed Um, in that massacre on October the 7th, and she had more than her work cut out for her. And she was telling her story saying that on one day when she was at a funeral, she saw another 17 more newly dug burial Mm. graves. And she said that at that moment, she felt her legs weaken, that she could hardly stand from the uh, emotional involvement that she had with all of these events that she was going through. And she said she came home at the end of that day and she crawled into bed without eating, woke up in the middle of the night feeling very, very unwell, feeling like her right hand was paralyzed. Uh, Something was being ripped out of her chest. That's the way she described herself. And she said that paramedics came to her home, told her that she was having a panic attack, but she went to the hospital anyway, uh, and she underwent some tests. And would you believe that she was diagnosed with a condition which is called in medical terms Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, oh, gosh. which broken we call heart syndrome. We, yeah. exactly wow. broken wow. heart syndrome. And would you believe that these events that she went through caused a rupture in her um, in her in her heart, a tear um, in her, the area of her heart? She had to undergo. Uh, a surgery. She was kept in a sedated um, state for quite a number of days. She was stabilized using an ECMO machine um, in order to uh, analyze this tear that she had suffered in her artery. It was literally 
from the events that she went through in dealing with these bereaved families and these funerals that she suffered from this broken heart syndrome. Eventually, her husband apparently requested for her to be woken up from her sedated state to celebrate her 40th birthday. Um, and she is now in recovery and thankfully has um, the opportunity to tell her story. But this is the extent to which people have been personally and emotionally involved in the events that have gone on um, over the past few months. Uh, just to give listeners an idea of some of the things that people on the ground here are having to deal with and how it's impacting on their day-to-day functioning, the ability to to cope with things. Emotionally, we are just very, very broken still three months later. The stories are just incredible and and heart-wrenching. And as I said before, many of them, I just can't really, I, I just can't really find myself enough strength to go into the details and really listen to them. Yeah, I, I find myself in a very, very similar position. Uh, can we just talk about the fact that the IDF has confirmed that a missile from Hezbollah in Lebanon damaged an air control base in northern Israel? What was strange about some of this reporting, it was almost like the IDF didn't want to acknowledge it, but then did. What's your, give us, give us the background to the story. So I agree with that in a sense, and there was certainly that feeling. I mean, w- let's start with the fact that um, that northern Israel has come under b- a barrage of rockets from Hezbollah in the north over the weekend. Some say it's a, a response to the events that took place in Beirut last week where uh, a senior Hamas figure was um, uh, was assassinated in the suburbs of Beirut, um, even though the IDF hasn't formally acknowledged their involvement in that assassination, along with, by the way, a number of other Hamas terrorists who were based in, in that Beirut suburb. Um, so apparently now the barrage of rockets that we saw over the weekend um, were a response from Hezbollah to that assassination. Um, bearing in mind that we're talking here about two separate organizations. The assassination was directed towards Hamas, even though the location in Beirut was very much a Hezbollah neighborhood um, in that mm-hmm. Beirut suburb. But the, nonetheless, the people to, against whom the attack was directed were clearly Hamas people. Um, Hezbollah seems to have taken it upon themselves to uh, retaliate against that. And I think that the retaliation is less against the fact that um, the assassination was were Hamas people, and I think more against the fact that it was just encroaching on their space, encroaching on their neighborhood, on their area that they control within Beirut. I think that that was more uh, of uh, an insult to them, and therefore uh, preci- uh, uh, precipitated this uh, response of this barrage of rockets that we saw over the weekend. Some dozens of rockets were, were fired. Um, especially on Saturday and also um, a number of rockets yesterday. Many of them, interestingly, were aimed towards Mount Meron, where there is an Israeli Air Force air traffic control base. And we now are being advised that some of some of the uh, that base were act, was actually um, um, damaged in the process of the attack. I think that the IDF's initial reluctance to acknowledge this damage might have been in order to try to discourage 
Hezbollah from continuing to aim their rockets at that moment because um, one of the things that we as civilians in Israel are being told is that if there is a missile that hits a certain area somewhere, don't immediately go into social media and say, hey, a missile has just landed in the middle of Tel Aviv. Because apparently the chances are that immediately after that, there might be a whole lot more because once they have the trajectory you're giving them the and guidance. the direction right, mm, mm. exactly, you're giving them the, the notification that they've been successful and why not fire a few more in that direction, knowing full well that the um, accuracy of the missiles that are being used are not that high. And so once they get things right, of course, it gives them the information that they need to continue to find. I just wonder to what extent the IDF was also using that principle when being a little reluctant to talk about exactly what went on on Mount Meron. I have to be honest and tell you that when I heard the silence, when I heard Hezbollah saying, we fired all these missiles towards Mount Meron uh, base, and I think they spoke about 50 or 60 missiles that they, that they acknowledged they had fired towards the Mount Meron base. And I noticed that the IDF was completely silent on the issue, not acknowledging, mm-hmm. not denying, not not saying, saying anything. I was a little concerned that the damage and the, the uh, impact might have been a little greater than even what we have at the moment. I was concerned that they were really just trying to process what was going on then, weren't saying anything until the moment came. But now they have come out saying that the Air Force's air defense system um, operational preparedness was not harmed during the time of this attack, but they have, of course, acknowledged that there was damage done by that Hezbollah rocket fire on Saturday. Um, and so apparently we can continue to uh, do business as usual in terms of the air traffic uh, controls that we need to use, that there is full redundancy, full backup systems for all of these systems, and that the damage that was done there. And in fact, even some photographs have been published in the press to show um, some of the damage done. So that was certainly a hit. And I just wonder what changes might have taken place in the constellation in the north in order to make sure that in the future, um, important installations like that get the right protection from Iron Dome or whoever it is, get the algorithms right in order to ensure that that sort of thing doesn't mm, happen mm. again. IDF troops continue to operate in the area of Khan Yunus in Gaza. So what is the objective in this particular area? Yes, yeah, so there's lots of conflicting reports coming about out about exactly what's happening with the IDF in Gaza. Um, of course, we now control greater swathes of Gaza, a lot more of uh, the civilians have moved to the southern area of Gaza. And of course, Khan Yunus is in that southern area of Gaza. And we are being told that many of the Hamas leadership, along with the civilians who've moved there, have somehow taken up their uh, positions in the southern end of the Gaza Strip. And Khan Yunus is certainly one of the areas that has been targeted as being potentially a place where Hamas leaders are hiding. There has also been speculation about where the hostages may have been held there or may still be held in the area of Khan Yunus in the, in the tunnels around there. The number of tunnels that have been destroyed, that have been discovered even underneath the hotel on the bo- on, on the beachfront in Gaza is um, the, one of the uh, nicer hotels in the Gaza Strip. What's happened is that IDF troops have found tunnels right underneath that hotel hotel so you know there you know as i said so many weeks ago when we first started um, this war campaign um, there is almost not any square kilometer of gaza where there are not 
terror tunnels operating underneath. And that's the reason why you're seeing this mass destruction in Gaza, because the only way in which you can really get to the terror tunnels is by d digging underneath um, civilian areas where the ter ter terror tunnels are, are operating. And of course, we also saw some uh, rocket fire still coming from Gaza, this time from a high-rise building, a, a civilian high-rise building. The only way to get rid of that is, unfortunately, to fire a missile at the building, and inevitably it creates, creates mass destruction on the ground in Gaza, because apparently there are no limits, there are no red lines about where missiles might be fired from, where terrorists might operate from, where tunnels might be built underneath. There are just no limits. And so the, the work in Khan Yunus right now is really about looking for Hamas terror infrastructure, mostly in the form of tunnels, which run underneath that southern end of Gaza. And though um, the IDF have done a lot of work to eliminate the terror infrastructure from uh, the northern end of the Gaza Strip and also to some degree in the central area, there is still a lot of work to be done in the south. And the IDF chief of general staff and some of the more senior um, brass were photographed holding an assessment meeting in one of those terror tunnels Amazing. in Khan Yunus over the weekend, including the head of the Shabak and the head of the military intelligence, that all the senior members of the team were there assessing the situation, and there were photo opportunities to show that they visited the place. The IDF chief of general staff has said that this may go on for the entire period of 2024. Absolutely crazy. Really, really just crazy. Uh, I just wanted to also get a sense of what happened yesterday. An IDF border police soldier and a civilian were killed in incidents yesterday. What happened? Well, I think there are two um, interesting incidents that took place yesterday. First of all, we mourn the death of Border Police Officer Sergeant Shai Germay. Uh, she was one of the forces who were operating in Janine when a roadside bomb uh, was detonated by a vehicle that she was driving in. The roadside bomb was so powerful that there were pictures that showed the doors of the vehicle that had been blown off mm. and that were kind of lodged on the side of the road some distance away from where the vehicle was, where the IDF border uh, soldiers uh, were operating. And unfortunately, Shai Germa was um, killed in that incident and a number of other border police officers were quite severely injured. And that's in Janine, that's not in Gaza, that's not in Lebanon, that's in Janine in the Palestinian Authority area. So let's just be quite clear that this is not a two front border, you could, a two front war. You could almost argue that this war is being fought on multi fronts because what's happening in the Palestinian Authority area is also um, quite significant and severe. And there is a war that's going on there right now and an attempt by the IDF to use this opportunity while this conflict is raging to clear out whatever they can within the Palestinian Authority areas, especially in Janine, which is a well-known uh, source of, of terror. And unfortunately, we mourn uh, Shai Germay, Sergeant Shai Germay, and of course, our condolences to her family, another IDF soldier killed in the course of this war. Um, yesterday in the uh, Samaria, Samaria area, there was a terror attack where an individual was shot in a car um, by a terrorist. And it turns out that the person who was shot was actually an Israeli Arab uh, traveling in that area. 
and um, he uh, was traveling along with another colleague in his car when these terrorists who apparently have no um, no issue with just attacking whoever happens to be there at that moment in time without necessarily taking into consideration that there may be Jews or there may be Arabs, it doesn't really matter. But in this case, it was Amar Mansour from East Jerusalem. He was 34 years old, was killed in that shooting um, in uh, the area of Samaria. And another a person who was traveling with him, a pharmacist from East Jerusalem, was also quite severely injured. What's interesting here is that the officers from the Yamam counterterrorism unit have arrested three suspects in Ramallah. Two of them are doctors, and one of them is a male nurse. These are the three people who are suspected of carrying out this terror attack against two Arab Israeli citizens from East Jerusalem. And that is where we leave it. Anthony Reich, thank you as always. We'll catch you tomorrow morning at 7.45 for the Israel Report. That Israel Report was brought to you by the Blue Agency. Your Israel property is in good hands. Hi, it's Barry Cohen from the Blue Agency. Israel is currently facing one of its biggest challenges ever. All of Klal Israel is praying for the safety of our soldiers and the return of the hostages. We hope and pray that our soldiers and security forces will prevail and that they will all return home speedily and triumphant. We hold the hands of our clients and friends who have children serving in Sahal, who are protecting Israel and Jews around the world. May Hashem protect us all.